It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, and this is an absolute pleasure. Before I come on to that, uh, the next live show is on Monday, the 19th of December. It's the last show of the year and it's the Christmas special. Now, of course, all these live shows are special, but as you'll know, if you've been to the Christmas shows before, they do have an end of term feel. And what a great way to end an incredible year um, than, well, the best way to end an incredible year is to come to the Duchess Theatre on Monday, the 19th of December. And the lineup is incredible. Yvette Cooper, who's never been on the show before, Emily Thornbury, who is always brilliant fun, and live music from MP4, the parliamentary rock band made up of MPs of various political parties. They're always great. Yvette will be amazing. Emily's always really funny. And they are always, I mean, if you've been to some of the ones before, Ed Balls and Alistair Campbell, Jess Phillips and uh, and Saida Farsi, they're always a bit more uh, outrageous um, than than the uh, than the fortnightly shows. They just have an end of term feel. So and that's Monday the 19th of December, Yvette Cooper, Emily Thornbury and live music. So that'll be a proper Christmas party. Then the first show back in the new year is the rescheduled with the amazing news agents, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel on Monday, the 23rd of January. Uh, I'd be able to reveal the 6th of February guest soon. The 20th of February guest, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. On the 6th of March, comedian and activist and politician, Eddie Izzard, and more guests to be announced throughout the year. Follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. Um, I'll put all the links in the blurb so you can click on the ticket link. But if you follow me, I, that's always the quickest way to find out who's going to be on, as well as checking the NIMAX website and uh, and my website as well. So on to today's guest, Rachel Reeves, someone who has been an MP since 2010 and people have been aware of. She's always obviously been touted as a rising star, but now a shadow chancellor. I mean, when you think about the turnaround in Labour's fortunes, and I do talk about this um, with Rachel, obviously a lot of it's down to Keir Starmer, but a lot of it is down to her as well and the work that she has done to gain back Labour's economic credibility. No easy task for any Labour politician, but she's really managed to do that. And there's so many great stories in here about um, facing four chancellors in almost as many weeks and how um, Shadow Chancellor, well, how she specifically deals with having to respond on her feet to things like Quasi Quartang's so-called mini budget and and trying to anticipate what your opposite number is going to do. Also, some fascinating stuff about Rishi Sunak in here. I mean, there's so many elements to this. I mean, the main thing is, I think sometimes in politics, and this, I think this comes across on TV as well, sometimes you get a sense, and obviously as a football fan, I'm bound to reach for football analogies, but you can sense when a team is coming together or when something's about to happen. You can kind of, you get a sense about a group of people sometimes in life, and it might be a band, it might be a football team, it might be a group of politicians. And you totally get this sense with Rachel Reeves that Labour know now that they are 
not just in the game, that in a way it's theirs to lose. And you can just sense now that just the whole mood around senior Labour politicians is completely different. So this is an amazing time to talk to the Shadow Chancellor because she just has such focus and energy and drive and just the clarity of thought. You know, there's nothing wishy-washy at all. It's just, it, it really is. It, it's a moment, I think, when you realise... Um, that British politics, that, that stuff is changing and that now, that doesn't mean Labour necessarily win the next election. Of course it doesn't, but you can just sense now that the Labour Party is in a very different place to where it was three years ago. And uh, what better person to talk uh, about that change with and the times in which we're living and just this is just really good, just a really amazing mixture of proper hard politics, really, someone who's really done all the hard work and just some great anecdotes about being Shadow Chancellor, about reshuffles, about being in the Commons and, and all the other things. And, of course, uh, watching the England-Senegal game with, with Keir Starmer and, uh, and Gordon Brown. So a lot to enjoy. And um, so let's start the show. I'm just waffling on now. I'm, 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 I should get on and let you actually listen to this interview. Um, but, of course, uh, as every show starts at the Duchess Theatre with a bit of stand-up about uh, an amazing fortnight in politics and football. Starmer, by the way, who is a genuine football fan, had a very odd formulation of words. He said, I agree with the Prime Minister, and we look forward to Wales qualifying for a future World Cup tournament at some point in the future. <laughs> said like someone who's never watched, you know, why you watch football? Why you just say, I hope Wales qualify for, you know, the Euros. Why are you saying it like the most Keir Starmer? Requisites of reaching the required qualification points in the next calendar. Fulfilling fixtures home and away within the agreed timetable. Very Starmer way to deal with it, but um, uh, Rishi Sunak watched the England-Wales game with some Welsh school kids at number 10 Downing Street. Fuck, you know, I hope you went full England on them. Sorry, I can't understand a word you're all saying. It's actually rude to speak another language in front of someone, you know that. It's really like, England, England, there were nine German bombers in the air. Stomach got a load of abuse for watching it in a cocktail bar, the England-Wales game. He said, oh, watching it in a cocktail bar. I mean, this is the problem with Keir Stomach. Because he's a genuine football fan and he wears Stone Island, he has artificially raised <laughs> expectations of his behaviour on a match day. I genuinely think people won't be satisfied until you turn on the news and go, leave the opposition, Keir Starmer watched the game in the notorious Blue Anchor pub in Bermondsey. <laughs> the game precariously at nil-nil at half-time, he ripped off his shirt, sang No Surrender and threw a bin through a kebab shop window. <laughs> the Labour left have said he still hasn't gone far enough. Incredible, but there was a bigger row. There was a bigger row at uh, Prime Minister's Questions that you might have seen about tax cuts for private schools. Private schools have charitable status in this country and they can avoid a lot of tax legally. Kirsten wants to close that, uh, close that loophole. And obviously Rishi Sunak went to an elite private school and there was a line in here where Rishi Sunak goes, oh, that was it. Keir Starmer says, would the £6 million that Winchester College receives from the state be better spent on their rifle ranges? or driving up standards at state schools in Southampton. I think that's a clever one to use that two Rishi Sunak examples. I mean, obviously Rishi Sunak had some, like, answer, but it would have been... I wish he'd have just answered it honestly and gone, rifle rangers. <laughs> Target practice is important for people from my background to keep people like you off my land. 
but he didn't. Instead, instead he opted for the very brave argument. He said, when he attacks the school I went to, he attacks the hard-working aspiration of millions of people across our country. I get the whole point that parents want best for their kids. Winchester College's fees this year are £46,000 a year. The average British wage is 38 grand before tax. That is not an attack on aspiration. Aspiration and going to Winchester College have literally nothing in common. It's about elitism. Now, I, I get that the parents send their kids there, they want the best, I don't deny that, but there's nothing to, that is beyond the reach of most people's ever exist. You can't say, you can't say, when he attacks me for getting a private jet to my mega yacht moored in Saint-Tropez, he's attacking the ambitions of millions of milkmen across this country. <laughs> Of course, uh, politics is very hard to keep out of, uh, of uh, sport, uh, as it has been in Qatar. Gareth Southgate, who I think is genuinely politically talented, in the run-up to the England-Wales game, you may have seen, that he didn't take any of the debate the, around the national rivalry. He was asked by a judge, he said, can you explain the England-Wales rivalry uh, to someone? And so, uh, you may have seen this, but he went, he went well, uh, they're here, and we're right there. <laughs> such a clever way to take the sting out of it and he went you know for me it's a football rivalry uh, I get for other people it won't be that but you know I live in Yorkshire and people feel like that about other parts of England so you know that, that's all I can say on that was, sort of started as a good point and ended up basically with him going look where I live people are very small-minded you know they hate people next door for no discernible reason and you know, that's an important part of football Gabriel you know but the England-Wales thing I thought was great. I thought, I'd love him to do Israel-Palestine. <laughs> well, they're there, but they're also right there. And you know, a lot of people who've never been there or there, but live here, 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 and here, have lots of opinions about who should be there and there without ever actually been there or there. So that's all I can say about it, Gabriel. You know? <laughs> now, you may have seen, actually, that uh, also in the news uh, last night, uh, Keir Starmer, and tonight's guest, Rachel Reeves, and Gordon Brown watched the England game together, and you may have seen the photos of everyone cheering, um, apart from Gordon Brown. Yeah. I saw a great photos of everyone cheering, and Gordon Brown literally looking, you can almost see the Senegalese flag being tucked back in. <laughs> to his inside jacket pocket. Uh, I mean, you know what, do you remember on Sky Sports, those of you who watch football might know this, they used to do a thing called Fan Zone, where you could either watch the game with the commentary of the professionals, or you could click the red button and hear highly partisan coverage from two... Oh, they should have done that with Starmer and Gordon Brown. It would have been amazing. We join our matchday commentary team of Gordon Brown and Keir Starmer. Will you join us here for this magnificent stadium in Qatar, which, of course, is morally appalling. But it could get us underway from left to right. No, 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 Keir, you know, I, I met a dad today in Fife. Uh, and he said to me, you know, we can't keep having these tournaments in places like Russia and Qatar. We can't allow it. We want to see football in the Middle East, but not like this. It's not the values, not only of our people, not only of sport. It undermines the values that we choose as a society. It undermines the very principle of sport that it should be open access for people, but it shouldn't be used to launder the soft power. Well, why are we talking? Uh, 
And what a lovely virtual quarter final with France and a lovely move by Harry Kane for the second. Of course, the players that we choose Jude Bellingham, Bakayo Saka, Harry Kane, Jordan Henderson from across, Phil Foden as well, and yes, Jordan Pickford. These are the players we choose. These are the formations that underpin our values. These are the strategies and the transitions of play that allow us to see. Not only do we qualify, not only do we get out of the group stage, but we aspire for more. Not only the quarterfinals, but the semi final and the final as well. You know, I met a dad today in Wigan who said to me, he said to me, we need to play it for the back, out of possession, but play with three in possession, with two wing backs that can transition to forward positions. He says, you will never get that with a Tory government. I mean, equally, I would like to hear our best football pundits commentate on politics would be nice. Look, I'm not saying, I'm not saying Labour can't win the next election. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, look, of course they've got talent. Look, they've got a big, look, think of the talent that's coming through. You've got your Kyles, you've got your Streetings, you've got your Reeveses. Look, I think, look, maybe not the next election, but the one after that, I think they're going to be real trouble for people. <laughs> They're all right, they're all right. They've got a good crop of players, they're all right. Look, they're okay. But you know what, they, they, they've got to work out. Got to stay away from the woke shit, and it'll be fine. Uh, of course, in bigger news, Matt Hancock uh, is out of the jungle. Uh, a lot of people now say, well, should we have more MPs on reality telly? And you think, I think some of them would do. Oh, Rishi Sunak on The Secret Billionaire. <laughs> Look, Tracy, I know I said I was just a Greg's trainee, but I'm not. I'm actually Rishi Sunak, and I'm a billionaire. And I know you said you wish you'd always gone to university and you wanted to take your daughter to Disneyland. So I've got £100,000 that I'm going to give to Jeff Bezos instead. I hope you understand. <laughs> Boris Johnson on Don't Tell the Bride. <laughs> yeah, I don't tell the bride. I don't tell her sister either, or... Uh... Or a sister's meat. Hmm. <laughs> so Keir Starmer on Naked Attraction would go... Uh... <laughs> well, look, I've got an offer to the left, an offer to the right, and a big offer down the centre. <laughs> Bit blue, innit? <laughs> but, of course, it is Christmas. Uh, it is important to remember that it is Christmas, which is very exciting. And uh, Ed Miliband at uh, the Chester by-election, which Labour won, was caught dancing in the street to Mariah Carey's All I Want is For Christmas Is You. And if you haven't seen this footage, type it in on Twitter, because Ed Miliband's in the street campaigning, a car goes past with All I Want For Christmas Is You by Mariah Carey blaring out. And Ed Miliband starts to dance, right, on his own. It's amazing. But he does, instead of just like that, he does like the arm twizzle thing, which... You might as well have Morris dance to it. I haven't seen people dance like that for like a hundred years. But imagine, I mean, only in this sort of era now would politicians feel, and I like the fact that politicians feel comfortable enough to do that, but imagine your granddad said to you, I never forget the day I was coming back from Pitt. And I saw Michael Foote in the street twerking. <laughs> would never have believed it. Imagine the fact <laughs> I mean, equally, I don't want him to dance, I want to hear him sing it. Well, I don't want a lot for Christmas conference. Well, I won't even ask for snow. Because I'll tell you why. Because human beings' impact on the environment is already catastrophic. We cannot keep making demands of our planet like this. I'll tell you, all I want for Christmas is a solution to the cost of living crisis delivered by a Labour government.
Welcome back to a very, very special night. Tonight's guest is someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. And tonight, thank you so much. It was a, it was a catchphrase in the olden days. I ditched it and I'm trying to bring it back. But um, lots of the people who come now don't realise. And um, just sounds like a sort of dumb thing to say. But there we are. Tonight's guest is one of the biggest talents in British politics. And he's forging her name in such difficult circumstances, but crucially, one of the most trusted politicians on the economy in the country, something that Labour have not had for quite some time. So, it's a real novelty to talk to a Labour politician that has deep economic credibility. She's only been Shadow Chancellor for a short time. In this year alone, she has faced four chancellors and seen three of them off. Please welcome, if the book is right, the next Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rachel Reeves! Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much. So, before we get onto the politics, last night you watched England <laughs> Senegal with Lisa Nandy, Tracy Brabin, Keir Starmer, and Gordon Brown. Was Gordon as gloomy as the photos made him look? That's just what Gordon looks like. I don't know what people expect a picture of Gordon to look like. That is just Gordon. He's wearing his suit. And he looked a bit grumpy. Uh, so it was just capture, capturing the, the natural Gordon Brown. But what would you, I mean, how could anyone think of a better way to spend a Sunday evening than with such great company watching the football? Now, I've got really no interest in football whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but um, even I started getting excited when they started scoring goals. It was a bit boring at the beginning, but even I got quite into it. Uh, but Keir, there's the one thing Kira and me aren't really on the same page on. Um, he is always going on about football. I think he's learnt now not to talk about it in front of me. One of the first interviews when he became leader was they started asking about these football things and he was asked about VAR. Yeah. Now, in economics, VAR is vector autoregression. Um, <laughs> but I didn't think that that's what he was talking about. But I had to Google it to find out it meant video-assisted referee. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> So I feel a bit of an expert now. Yeah. And does he, is, he, is he sort of polite when he's in company with people who perhaps are novices when it comes to... Because, Rachel, how many times offside <laughs> is whether the ball is played forward in the opponent's half? <laughs> or is he kind of more relaxed about it? I've got to say, Kia, when's the interval? <laughs> <laughs> and he kept rolling his eyes at me. <laughs> That's why he was sitting next to Gordon. I said, I really shouldn't sit near the front. It'd be wasted on me. But uh, uh, no, I did, I did enjoy my evening. A glass of red wine helped. Well, yes. Uh, and, and an England victory. And a victory, good, yeah. It's good for the country, isn't it? It's, it's great, it? yeah. Um, but also, you were, you were in Leeds not just to watch the football um, with Gordon Brown and Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy and Tracy Brabian, but for this big announcement today where Labour are going to... And it is my constituency. Of course there is that. Oh, you were basically just... <laughs> <laughs> Some people go to Leeds for other reasons than like the announcement of the Gordon Brown Commission on the future of the UK. Uh. So they don't basically just come round to yours. <laughs> they could have done, yeah. <laughs> but, but the announcement, I, of course, I, I didn't know that. But yeah, I'll recover as quickly as I can. The, um, the announcement about if Labour win the next election, getting power and opportunity out of London and reforming the House of Lords, replacing it with all this sort of thing. I thought the event this morning was really impressive. Tracy Braben and Gordon Brown and Keir Starmer talking about all these things. Keir Starmer was asked this uh, about whether House of Lords reform is a big issue in Leeds. Uh, is, is it something that your constituents raise with you? 
Uh, my local party members do. They're very interested <laughs> in it. Um, but look, I think that people do see in, like, the economy is broken, but our politics is broken as well. It's not functioning properly. Um, you know, these latest lists of people going into the, the House of Lords and previous lists, you know, how much money you've given to the Conservative Party, how many contracts you've got for PPE. You know, it's just not the way to decide who governs our country. And there's 830 members of the House of Lords. In the US, the second chamber has got 100 people in it. We're a country with a fraction of the size, but apparently we need 830 legislators. And it is the absolute definition of a job for life. But it's even worse than that because we've still got hereditaries in the House. House of Lords, so it's a job not just for their life, but for the future generations of their family as well. So, look, I, I don't think there's anyone that seriously says that the status quo is all right when it comes to the House of Lords. I think they should be up for election. I guess it's that tricky thing, isn't it, of the public say they don't like the House of Lords, and they'll say their views of politicians, whether they're elected or appointed or whatever, and then how do you actually then design a policy that... By its nature, the media are always going to say, oh, constitutional reform's not at the top of the list. How do you then take that genuinely deeply held public view and marry it with a set of ideas that people go, actually, even though I care more about the NHS, dog shit, or whatever else, that still is something that you can excite me with that. It, that seems to be sometimes a bit of a challenge. Well, look, our number one uh, challenge, um, you know, if and when we win the next election, is to grow the economy and tackle the cost of living crisis. Um, but the way we do our politics is also important for that. So, you know, the key thing we talked about today was not, uh, you know, how the House of Lords is, is uh, elected or appointed or whatever. It was about handing power to local communities to make better decisions in their local interests. So Tracy Brabin gives the example of what she's done on bus fares, capping bus fares, but she has no say over the bus routes, um, for example. So, you know, how can we be a properly functioning economy when people can't take a job because they can't get there by bus or, or, or train because none of them are working uh, properly? So it is about, you know, not just about how we do our politics, but about whether our local economies are, are thriving and, and, and succeeding. And I genuinely believe that decisions made closer to where people live are going to be better decisions and will probably result in better value for money for the taxpayer too. And is that a deliberate way then to, to sort of marry the constitutional issues with economic ones? Yeah, so economic devolution was at the heart of this report today. So, you know, someone said to Keir in the Q&A afterwards, are you saying that after being, you know, in opposition for 12, 14 years, whatever it's going to be by the time of the next election, the first thing you're going to do is give power away? And he just said yes. Um, I think that is really important that we say that because look, we do believe that Leeds and West Yorkshire are better at making decisions about our bus services, where the houses should be uh, built, um, um, what local infrastructure we need, what skills training we need. We'll make those decisions better in Leeds and West Yorkshire than you know the most benign, benevolent civil servants and politicians in in Westminster, many of whom you know don't know those communities. And then, so for Labour now, obviously, you're, you're Shadow Chancellor. You've been an MP since 2010. You've had other shadow roles and, and chaired a select committee, but this is really the second biggest job in, in Labour politics at the moment. And given where Labour's been really since 2010 on the economy, you've almost single-handed, you and Keir together have had to single-handedly resurrect Labour's reputation for sound economic management. What have been, for you, the, the crucial things in, in, in getting credibility on the economy? Well, so last year at Labour Party conference, which was my first party conference as Shadow Chancellor, I said that I was more than happy to take on the Tories when it came to economic competence because I know that we can win. Now, I didn't realise at that point that they weren't even going to put up a fight. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
But even even when they do make a bit of an effort, um, <laughs> I know that we can win. Um, and you know, Liz Truss said in the summer she didn't believe in abacus economics. Well, I, I happen to believe being able to add up at the Treasury is quite a good starting point. Uh, and I can say to people, I can definitely add up. So. Look, you know, when it comes to growing the economy, um, managing the public finances, obviously Labour's got to come a long way to rebuild that trust and credibility, but Kira and me are doing that. And I think when you see the two of us, uh, we are the sort of people that you can trust with taxpayers' money, and that we do have a serious plan for growing the economy, our green prosperity plan, our reforms of business rates, our um, ideas to make Britain the best place to start and grow a, a business. You know, there's plenty of, of policy and meat there, uh, and I just really hope that we get a chance to deliver that in government. Did you see that? I won uh, an award last week, Matt. Oh, yeah, what was it again? Chancellor <laughs> of the Year. <laughs> oh, the Spectator Award. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I did see that. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Ben's <laughs> uh, got it up in my office wall. Uh, yeah, so I just hope to get rid of the shadow from beginning my job title to claim it properly. I mean, that must feel... Uh, if the spectator are telling you that you're effectively Chancellor of the Year, that must give you a sense that even people that previously weren't prepared to vote Labour are, are looking at you and, and positively... Yeah, well, the, the um, chairman of Tesco's uh, said on Laura Koonsberg um, a couple of weeks ago that uh, you know, when it came to a plan for growth, Labour's the only show in town. You know, we're really proud of things like that, that serious business leaders are now looking to Labour and thinking that we've got the answers. And you know, when it comes to the cost of living crisis, I said at the beginning of this year, it was the first um, weekend in January, and I did the announcement that we would impose a windfall tax on the big profits that the oil and gas companies are making and use that money to keep people's bills low. Rishi Sunak, and he was Chancellor at the time, that was three Chancellors ago, um, he, he said at the time that that would be a big mistake, it would, it would, it would uh, stop investment, it wasn't the British way of, uh, of doing um, uh, uh, things. Uh, then eventually he sort of um, did a sort of semi-U-term when he introduced the energy profits levy, uh, but this levy is so meaningless that even Shell didn't pay a penny of it in the last quarter because they claimed all the money back through investment allowances. You know, look, I think that those windfalls of war should be taxed properly and that money should be used to keep people's bills low. You know, politics is about choices. Those are the choices that I would make and I think that those are the choices that the British people want us to make and that's what we would do in government. Are you shocked that, uh, as a, just from the Tory point of view, that these are, you know, capitalism is crucial to their identity and sound money and things like that, and that's always something that they feel they have over the Labour Party, and to be fair to them, in the Corbyn years, almost by default, they, they would uh, have the trust of the public over Labour on that realm. But the fact that they don't see that public appetite for some taxing of certain things, like a windfall tax, mm. inflated by Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine... That they, that, they, that they didn't see that that was an opportunity for them, not only to pl plug the public finances, but be in tune with public opinion. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's not just the windfall tax. I mean, that is the most obvious um, sort of example, the one that we use. But, you know, if you, if you look at how businesses are, are taxed, well, you know, I believe that if you can afford to fly to space, you should be able to afford to pay your taxes here on planet Earth. Uh, <laughs> and under a Labour government, they will. Um, I also believe that charity, uh, the private schools are many things, but they're not charities. And there shouldn't be tax breaks on, um, the, on, on VAT on, on, on public schools. You know, if you, if you buy a new washing machine, if you take your family out for Sunday lunch, if you buy a takeaway coffee, you pay VAT. 
why shouldn't there be VAT on, on school fees? Now, that would raise £1.7 billion, and we would put that where it belongs, in our state schools, uh, because that's what real aspiration is. It's helping all of our kids from all sorts of backgrounds get on in life, not just the most privileged. And when... Because the t- they tried to do it with bankers' bonuses, so we're going to get rid of the cap. And it was a bit of a bear trap. That is trap. the only thing that has survived from <laughs> Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget is the cap on bankers' bonuses being lifted. Because if there was one thing that you could save, it would be ensuring that bankers could be paid properly this Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but they, sometimes you get the sense that they're, they're doing that because of, of the game, the, the strategy. They're saying, you know what, let's tempt Labour into being anti-aspirational. Are you, even though they've been just completely incompetent economically this year, are you still sort of aware of and alive to the fact that that's what they're trying to do in a way? It's not just about what they ideologically believe necessarily. It is a trap for you and Keir Starmer to perhaps fall into and look like you're against aspiration. But, you know, aspiration is wanting kids from whatever background to do well. And I was, to be honest, like last week when Sunak says to Kia. Oh, you know, you you did it in the first half or whatever. But, you know, my my mum and dad weren't aspirational for me because they just sent me to the local comp. I'm not aspirational for my kids because I send them to the local state school. I couldn't give a shit about their education. Just send them to the local (laughs) state school. I mean, it's just so insulting. It really is. Uh, But that seems what him and his party um, believe. You know, I'm not for the 7%. I'm for the 93%. Uh, percent, and I want the money to go to those schools. You know, we've got teachers who are using their own money to buy basics at schools. You've got schools that no longer do school trips because they don't want to exclude kids and they know their parents can't afford it. We've got kids who are turning up to reception and nursery who, you know, can't, you know, can't even speak properly, who, you know, still aren't properly, um, you know, potty trained. It is an absolute disgrace. It's because the government got rid of Sure Start and aren't investing in our public services. That's what you've got. There is nothing that works better today than it did 12 and a half years ago when the Tories came into government. You know, whether it's our schools, our hospitals, our trains, our buses, our prisons, uh, 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 getting a driving licence, getting a passport. Is there anything in this country that works better than it did before the Tories came into government? And you couldn't say that England after... England football team. <laughs> 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 and you know, and what was um, that, that the MP for Dover, Nat- Natalie Elphick, oh, yes. um, when um, Rashford uh, missed a penalty, her tweet was if we spent more time on football rather than trying to get free school meals for our kids, maybe it'd be better. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> I think you're getting into football. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus Rashford. <laughs> he plays for Man United. <laughs> I think. But you're an MP in Leeds. In Leeds. Calvin Phillips, but he doesn't play for Leeds anymore. So that's a bit sad. Yeah. But he's very good. He's very good. <laughs> Still, he's, yeah. But Leeds fans feel like he's one of them, don't they? He's, 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 a... he's from my constituency. Have you ever met him? No. <laughs> but well. I would recognise him now. <laughs> there is that. I'm, sure, I'm sure he would know who I was. Oh, I think, I think that's oh. the politically aware crop of young men. Yeah, they are. They are brilliant. And I'm sure yeah. they're all voting Labour. Yeah. Most of them. As long as they don't sense that you're anti-aspirational. But um, do you, uh, with the Tories, just uh, having faced so many chancellors in such a short space of time, obviously every political party goes through these lurches to the left and right and and being more sensible or less sensible at any one time. Have you been surprised at at effectively the rate of decline in the discipline and just the, the nature of governance of the Tories in office? 
Yeah, I mean, look, this year we've had three prime ministers, four chancellors and four budgets. You know, this is not normal. Um, uh, you know, we've got, um, you know, a prime minister that is so weak, he had to appoint Suella Braverman, who's a national security risk, for Home Secretary, otherwise he would have had to face a leadership contest against Boris Johnson. Now, the last time he was in a leadership contest, he lost to Liz Truss, who in turn lost to a lettuce. Uh, so, funnily enough, we didn't really fancy that experience uh, uh, again. You know, he's so weak, he can't even appoint the people that he wants to the, the jobs. You know, the Deputy Prime Minister is somebody who everybody knows is a bully, apart from apparently Rishi Sunak. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think the deterioration of this government and the lack of discipline now uh, in this government is is quite staggering. And I mean, I've been an MP for you know 12 and a half years. I've never seen anything um, like it. And I think it is interesting to see all these Tory MPs who are young standing down at the next election. You know, they've given up as well. Of the four chancellors you faced this year, <laughs> who's the most formidable? Well, one of them, I was actually, he was there for such a short time, I was never actually against him at the dispatch box. Uh, that was Nadeem Zahawi, that was um, two chancellors ago. Um, so, um, I mean, Kwasi Kwarteng was obviously the biggest sort of crash and burn. Like, we were only up against each other at dispatch box maybe twice. The last time was for the mini budget. Um, um, and then, obviously, Hunt now, who's doing his best to look like a, a grown-up and wants to say all the time, you know, I think, you know, Rachel agrees with me uh, on, on this, because uh, that's now, like, how they sort of show that they are very sensible, so even Rachel will agree with us on this. <laughs> uh, um, um, so, yeah, look, I think things have got worse during the, the course of the... Um, the year. I mean, I guess, you know, like, it'd be easy to say, oh, you know, Rishi Sunak was the, the, you know, the most formidable and obviously he survived the longest. But, you know, in his time as Chancellor, he managed to hand out three and a half billion pounds in contracts to friends and donors of the Conservative Party. And six and a half billion pounds has been written off in fraud uh, for COVID contracts. You know, like the money to Matt Hancock's pub landlord, to the company where Owen Patterson was a, a, a consultant. You know, that is not the way to hand out contracts for PPE, for medical testing e equipment. And Richard Sunet was really happy to have his signature over everything during that pandemic. And he needs to take responsibility for all of that money, taxpayers' money, that was written off. And that money should be used in our public services, which are on their knees. Uh, and instead, this government just comes time and time again and asks working people to pay more in taxes because they're throwing all this money um, in these dodgy contracts to their mates. Just on Matt Hancock, <laughs> would you ever do reality, Tony? <laughs> have you ever been asked? No, I haven't. Matthew Hancock and me started work together at the Bank of England on the same day. Uh, we were both economists at the bank. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was exactly the same then as he... Uh, well, I don't know if he was, like, snogging like, <laughs> in the office. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. uh, but uh, he used to always sit in the front row, like, for all the training sessions, and first one to put his hand up. Uh, it's really tedious. <laughs> uh, uh, but, no, I wouldn't go to the sort of um, Australia and do whatever horrible things he's been doing. So, in, in, in those meetings you were in with him then, were there many people in those meetings? Was it a small group, big group? So we were a graduate intake of 30, 35 um, people. And, you know, we both then knew what our politics were. Um, so, um, but, you know, we got on fine. We got on fine. Um, but, yeah, we, yeah, we were quite different. <laughs> and, and did you think he was bright? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I 
say yes, like, that makes me look like an idiot. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I mean, we always got on, we always got on fine, but he had very, you know, he was a sort of, you know, traditional conservative, people should know their place, you know, quite sort of a bit stuck up. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, he was, he was Tory when it was really unfashionable to be a Tory. You know, this was like 2000 when, you know, the sort of peak of New Labour. But, you know, he nailed his colours to that, that, that mast, but he was always sort of toadying up. Uh, and then he did to Osborne and, and Johnson. Um, and now it's all gone. Well, I think it's now all gone horribly wrong, but he's having the time of his life, isn't he? So, <laughs> so he... Just think about being shadow chancellor then, and obviously you've faced quite a few chancellors, but do you, re- because when it's these big parliamentary moments, like it's a budget or the autumn statement, a budget, it's not a budget, obviously they've worked on it, and you only get advanced size with very, with very, very short notice. I don't, get, I don't get any. I don't know what he's going to say until he says it. So then, how hard is that to prepare for? So I, so I have a sort of a, uh, you know, a speech written, um, and then it's, um, every line is numbered, and then we have a WhatsApp group between me and Pat McFadden, who's my shadow chief secretary, and a couple of people in the office. And we'll be sort of like, delete line 76. <laughs> or, you know, insert, you know, we, sometimes we've got choices. Either say this, like, you know, we welcome the fact that they've now done a proper windfall tax, or we regret the fact, that's the one we have to keep, that they still haven't done a proper windfall tax. Um, so we've got this sort of like, either or, depending on what they say. And then you usually change the beginning bit based on something that they've said um, in the in the statement. But basically, it's real-time editing as the Chancellor speaks. And then we also have these pages, which are the rabbit pages, because you know they're going to pull a rabbit out of the mm-hmm. hat. Uh, and so we've got about, we maybe guess about five different rabbits, um, and we're pretty good at it, <laughs> um, apart from in the mini-budget, uh, where the rabbit was cutting the top rate of tax from 45 to 40p. Now, we didn't guess that because it was really stupid. <laughs> and even we didn't think that they would be that stupid. Uh, so that's the only time I've got it wrong. So we had, this is how naive we are, we had something in our rabbit, we thought they might pull out the hat, was a big increase in the minimum wage because we thought that would be like a really, like, that'd be hard for us. We'd have to welcome it and it'd be the right thing to do. So we thought that was the rabbit we were really worried about. <laughs> Turns out we didn't need to worry about that at all. <laughs> they went the other way. Um, so when you're, so with that, when you hear him say we're abolishing the 45p rate, you know, the tax cut for higher earners, how quickly do you have to be sure that's what you've heard? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that must be actually quite hard to go. Hang on, is that what he's definitely said? You don't want to get up and react and think that maybe you've you've misheard, or do you not feel that sort of pressure? You're absolutely clear that. And then you I mean, know he made such a big it. thing about it. Yeah. It wasn't it just goes, oh, yeah, and by the way, we're going to... You know, it was like, this was the centrepiece. This was their, like, really their big thing. They wanted to be leading the 6 o'clock and the 10 o'clock news. I mean, it did do those things, but not for the reasons that they'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the government announced a cut from 45 to 40p, and the pound has gone to an all-time low against the dollar. Uh, so maybe not quite what they were hoping for. But, um, yeah, so then, obviously, we have to respond to, to that. I remember one of Sunak's... Um, uh, budgets, um, you know, a long time ago, um, um, back in March, and it, I, I had to change the beginning <laughs> to say, this has been a good budget for bankers on short-haul flights sipping champagne, because they did these three things. They did something on um, on bankers' taxes in that. They got, they, 
they reduced the banker's surcharge um, and then they reduced the tax on short-haul flights because that's what we need more of to tackle the climate emergency uh, and then they reduced taxes on champagne so we decided that there was the back well I, I wrote that in the chamber whilst he was uh, doing his speech that, so that that's the sort of thing you have to do quickly because we couldn't have guessed that until we were in there and when you deliver a quick line like that and you look at him how did he take that um, well, Sunak's funny. So he never made eye contact with me for the whole almost year and a half that I shadowed him. So he would just like I would like always sort of like, especially those bits, would try and you know stare him out. Um, but he just would never look at me. So I, mean, I have no idea what colour his eyes are. He would never <laughs> look at me, uh, um, which is slightly odd. Um, we never had any contact the whole time that I shadowed him. And what is that? Is that nerves on his I don't part? know. I mean, you know, to be fair to Jeremy Hunt, as soon as he got the job, um, he reached out and we've had a couple of telephone calls and stuff. But, yeah, I don't understand why as soon as... It's not, it, it's not good politics. Like, I shadowed Michael Gove and whatever you think of Michael Gove, I'm sure there's different views. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> maybe not. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I shadowed him for a year and, you know, it was like... I was on speed dial, I and mean, he was always in touch. Um, but it, that, I think that is quite good politics to, you know, keep your enemies close or whatever. Um, but no, none of that from, from Sunak. That was slightly... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. God. And observing, because it, it, people who haven't been to House of Commons don't appreciate just how close you are when you're opposite each other in fact, right? Unable to return eye contact. I mean, some people might say, you know, is that snobbery? Is that nerves? I mean, just having watched him at close quarters, do you, what is your assessment of, of, of him as a character or as a person? Um... <sighs> I, I don't really know. We've only we've had one conversation really, and that was um, when he just after he'd lost the leadership contest, and we bumped into each other at this um, reception at the Tate, um, at the Tate Modern, um, and we had a little chat um, then, which was nice. And his wife was there. It was quite a, you know we just chatted about family. And he at this stage obviously had just um, lost the leadership um, contest, but. Yeah, I say I never really, despite the fact that we were opposite each other for a long time and were up against each other very regularly in the House of Commons, never really built up any sort of um, rapport. I mean, he was interesting during the leadership contest. He just totally blundered. He just couldn't. I mean, you know, you think now couldn't be a match for Liz Truss. I mean, like, I can't believe you're saying that. Um, but he was absolutely destroyed by her. And watching Liz Truss at fairly close quarters. Did you think she was nervous? Was she, has she always been like that? Like what? She's, oh, she's a bit awkward, isn't she? Uh -uh. And did you feel sorry for her at all? No. <laughs> uh, no, because she has done permanent damage 
to our economy. I mean, you know, like, what is it, like two million people are coming to the end of a mortgage deal by the end of the next year? Well, we're all paying higher. And their mortgage costs, in part, because of that disastrous mini-budget, which has put a sort of permanent premium, you know, the sort of Tory premium on, on people's borrowing costs. So, you know, the people I feel sorry for are the people who are having to live with the consequences of her actions. I know that might sound a bit, you know, ungallant or whatever, but no, I, I don't, I don't um, feel sorry for her at all. So when you're there, you're in the House of Commons, you see a, a, a boisterous atmosphere, you've got the WhatsApp group going. <laughs> so Pat McFadden, presumably, sat fairly near, or is he kind of back He's at next base? next to me. Right, OK. And have you got any policy people back at head office or somewhere? Yeah, so they're up in my office, and okay. then so there's, there's the four of us on the WhatsApp group, okay. uh, me and Pat, and then a couple of the people in the team. But obviously, when you're on WhatsApp, are the mess- are you like, Keir's like, should we book a table for the game at the weekend? <laughs> Not now, Keir. <laughs> Get to the quarterfinal first. <laughs> Like other chats coming up, there's a risk that you might reply to the wrong message. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the, 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 um, so the first budget that I was, that Kia was supposed to respond to, that was last October, because Kia's supposed to respond to budgets and I respond to fiscal statements. But do you remember, Kia did a COVID test 45 minutes before the budget in October 2021. <laughs> And he said, his wife texted him and said, oh, you didn't do a COVID test this morning. He did them every morning. Mm. And, uh, and he said, oh, Vic's just reminded me I haven't done a COVID test, so I'd better go and do that. <laughs> You're joking. Like, like, now, really? Um, and so I said, OK, fine. So I went back to my office and I came to his office to come and collect him to go down to the budget. And I said, is Keir coming? And they were like, no. And I went, well, OK, we'd better go quite soon. They're like, he's got COVID. <laughs> Uh, so then I had to take a COVID test, but just in case that it like yeah. passed it on to me. Luckily, he hadn't. Um, so we had that WhatsApp group set up for me and him in the office, but we had to get Pat then into it. Uh, and then I had to go and, um, and respond. That was my first experience of responding to a budget, and I had 45 minutes' notice. So they're now a breeze, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you feel in those? Do you feel sort of nervous excitement, the adrenaline, or do you have a sort of good level of composure? No, definitely the uh, adrenaline. But I say, I mean, I have now done, yeah, four this year. And everyone's like, you know, it's always reported, like, leading up to it, you know, this budget will define the next election. And then after a while, you just think, well, that's what you said about the last one. Like, <laughs> we're going to have another one in a few weeks' time. So forgive me if I'm getting a bit cynical about these. <laughs> um, but no, you definitely, you know, the adrenaline, the chamber's packed. It's the only other thing like it is, you know, is the Prime Minister's questions when the chamber is absolutely uh, packed and then, you know, that not knowing what the rabbit is that they want to leave the budget or the statements or whatever with this, you know, policy that they then want to lead the news um, and to focus their campaign on and we don't know what that is until it's, until it's delivered. And do you enjoy those moments? Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what... That's what I'm there to do. So, yeah, yeah. And, like, as I say, apart from the shadow at the beginning of the title, this is the job that I guess I've always wanted to do, really. Did you dream of being on the other side of that <laughs> chamber, delivering a budget? <laughs> yeah, of course I do. <laughs> um, when I was at university, <laughs> when I was at university, and I was obviously, like, already by then a sort of, sort of sad, sort of Labour sort of fan, and because I, I loved economics and maths and everything, and so I was a big Gordon Brown uh, fan who we've been talking about earlier. <laughs> and uh, for my birthday, the first year, my friends bought me a framed picture of Gordon Brown. <laughs> <laughs> 
I wasn't planning on selling you that. <laughs> and did he look, uh, did he look gloomy oh, in the picture? He, he was wearing a suit and a red tie. <laughs> was it signed? No, it wasn't signed. No, he doesn't know. Don't tell him. <laughs> you should have taken it along last night. <laughs> Thank you for all that you do. <laughs> that is... People may know through this um, podcast, but if you've worked in labour circles, you know that is the that is the standard Gordon Brown. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for all you. You know, whenever you met him, that was always. I mean, it's a lovely thing to say, but he does it say it to everyone uh, every time. So that's a bit of insider gossip. But that's what I find so fascinating about you, and obviously it's something that. The last time Labour was really credible on the economy was that when you had people like Ed Balls and Gordon Brown there, and these were people that you knew of, weren't just political chancellors. They were people who were obsessed about the economy, non-endogenous growth theory, whatever the thing was that was cooked up. You're very much in that breed of people. It's actually called uh, post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory. <laughs> 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 but you can't expect everyone to I got it wrong. Oh, <laughs> oh God. It's all right. I really thought for a moment. Thank you. Um, but people who are genuinely obsessed about economics. So did you get into economics because you're obsessed by politics and that's what drove you to then want to understand the mechanics of effectively how you redistribute and all things like that? Or is it more the math side? Well, a bit of both, really. Yeah, maths was my best subject at school. But then I started getting into politics. And so then I sort of did economics as well at A-level. Um, but... Yeah, yeah. No, economics is what I... It is that sort of mixture between maths and, and politics. And do you get the sense, of, and I know you've faced so many in such a short space of time, that perhaps they don't have that level of expertise that you have? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I worked as an economist for lots of years before I became uh, an MP, you know, at the Bank of England with my mate Matt. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, th- yeah, this is the job that, I've, that I wanted, that I really wanted to do. And obviously when, yeah, it was a bit like... So you knew that Keir was going to do a reshuffle that weekend, and it was like a bit like you know when you're a teenager and waiting for your boyfriend to call. Uh, and the thing Heck of an like, exclusive. <laughs> and and it's like during the course of the day, it's like she doesn't call. And then by the end, I was like, I don't even want to be. I don't even want to be shadow chancellor. <laughs> and then I was having Sunday lunch, with, uh, you know, tea with my family, and I said to uh, my husband. I said, just have a glass of wine, just have a glass of wine. I don't even care. And then the phone rang, rang, said, oh, it's Kia. (laughs) Sorry, see you later. (laughs) Hey, babes. Hiya, yeah, no, no, just, uh, yeah, just uh, chilling out at home, yeah. (laughs) What have you been doing? (laughs) You see, they go, no, you hang up. (laughs) (laughs) Is uh, Is he a flirt? Style, I'd describe him. No. <laughs> but you obviously have a close working relationship. But, I have a glass of <laughs> but you do have, obviously, uh, the relationship between Labour leaders and their either chancellors or shadow chancellors, uh, part of, particularly since the new Labour era, part of mythology, really. Um, are you aware of uh, not repeating, perhaps, uh, the mistakes of the past? Yeah, look, I think that is a big advantage that. Kira and me have that we do we get on really really well and um, both of us are trying to do the job we really want to do he wants to be prime minister and I want to be chancellor and that's quite useful uh, and wasn't perhaps the case in the past <laughs> but he wouldn't be prime minister forever uh, <laughs> fine but I mean look I, I have always wanted to be chancellor that's you know number 11 the red box uh, <laughs> 
Dạ Ồ I think it's really cool that not that you admit it, you should be like, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but like the amount of politicians who sort of pretend then they don't have ambition, you're like, there's nothing wrong with admitting you want to be Prime Minister or to have like a specific thing. Chancellor's such an amazing job. It's a really cool thing to want to be for a number of reasons. Obviously to change the world, but also like red box, number 11, all that sort of thing. All my friends who want contracts, I mean, they're going to be, <laughs> they're going to love me. Because <laughs> it must be, I mean... Can you produce PPE? Do you know how to do that? <laughs> political party... Uh, <laughs> PPP, a political party <laughs> podcast. But, you know, I'll probably take 400 million pounds to figure out. Um, uh, so that you're so close to becoming Chancellor. And, and obviously, people always look back and say, oh, you know, the new Labour government and everything... But new Labour came in at a time when the economy was growing and that it was so much easier to redistribute. If you do win the next election, some point in the next two years, you're not going to have the same economic landscape that, that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair had. How do you deliver Labour politics that can really change people's lives, and get people excited and, and hopefully win a second term in a very difficult and very different economic climate? Yeah, look, I think you're right to say that that analogy of 97 isn't quite you know, true, because, you know, Black Wednesday, the Tories never recovered from that. But four and a half years later, when you had the 97 general election, the economy was growing, inflation was um, was under control, um, public services were on their knees. Mm. So that is the similarity. But it looks likely that we're going to inherit both public services on the knees and an economy that is on its knees uh, as well. And I think that is a tougher inheritance than what Tony and Gordon had in 1997. And Kira said, you know, we're not going to be able to do everything we want as quickly as we want, but we can make different choices. And, you know, I've given some examples about those different choices. And I think there is some similarities there between 1997. You know, we will say how we will fund everything that we will do. So in 97, the Labour got rid of the assisted places school at private schools and used that money to reduce class sizes for five, six and seven-year-olds. You know, it's very similar to what we're saying now. Um, VAT on private school fees and, and, and business rates being charged um, on private schools. And we would use that money to invest in all of our state schools, that we would reform business taxation so that the global multinationals pay their fair share to help our small businesses and our high streets to thrive. That private equity bosses, who at the moment pay capital gains rather than income tax on their bonuses, are actually taxed properly. And we would use that to invest in, in public services. So... You know, I think the scale of our ambition is there, but does it mean we can, you know, put right all of the wrongs that the Tories have created in the last 12 and a half years straight away? You know, look, sadly, it doesn't mean that, but, you know, politics is about priorities, and I think we've made pretty clear our priorities, and I guess first and foremost amongst those as well as Labour's Green Prosperity Plan to get to clean power by 2030, to create GB Energy and the National Wealth Fund. You know, you're not getting any of this from the Conservatives, you know, nothing about public services, uh, nothing about growing the economy, nothing about the cost of living crisis, nothing about the fair taxes that Labour would come in. So, you know, we've got a very different offer, um, but I do recognise that the inheritance is going to be really tough. And how does it feel? Because this time three years ago, Labour were heading into a general election campaign where they got the worst result since the 1930s. Mm. 
And everyone was saying, well, the Labour Party doesn't have a divine right to exist. People talk about literally an existential crisis, one of the great political parties of our time. Three years later, people say, you're going to win the next election. How are you going to get re-elected? No, I know that things aren't in the bag. But it's a heck of a speedy turnaround Mm -hmm. due to the political management of people like Keir Starmer and yourself. I mean, does it... Does it feel strange to have effectively turned it around so quick? Did you expect to be this far ahead at this point? Well, I think Keir says that when he became leader, people would sort of pat him on the back and just say, oh, you know, well done, good luck. (laughs) Uh, um, But no one sort of said, you know, you could be Prime Minister in five years' time because that wasn't really on the cards. It didn't look likely. But Keir always sort of saw this as a five-year project. In the first year, you had to understand the scale of the defeat and show that you were listening um, uh, again, and then to introduce Kia and the party again to the, the, the public, who we are and what we stand for, and then to start sorting out some of the internal mess, mess in, the, in the Labour Party, and then to develop the policies for the next manifesto. And, you know, we're doing all of those things. Kia has never gone sort of off course. He knew what was needed to, to, to win again within five years, and we're on that journey. And I mean, it is amazing what he's done. I know it's a team effort, but what he's done really in the last two and a half years to turn our party around. Because it's true. I mean, you know, those five years were just were just awful. And that 2019 result when we lost seats like, you know, like Sedgefield, like Bishop Auckland, like Redcar, like Wakefield, like Great Grimsby, you know, it was just absolutely devastating. And to lose so many brilliant and talented colleagues and have to rebuild from scratch. But I've never felt as confident as I do now in the 12 and a half years that I've been an MP. And in those five years, lots of people left. Some people mm. went and broke away, started a party and defected two or three times. Did it ever cross your mind to, to leave the Labour Party or to not be a Labour MP at that point? No, um, it didn't. Um, but I was very good friends with a lot of people who did. And I don't blame them for the decisions that they made. I understand, especially, you know, my good friend Luciana Berger, why she made the decisions that she made. I think the worst moment for me was the Panorama documentary on anti-Semitism, which I watched in horror, really. And I I did, uh, at the end of that, think, what am I doing, you know, being Labour when when this is happening in my party? But I've always believed that the Labour Party is the best route to getting, you know, a centre-left government, a social democratic government. Um, And I felt that I wanted to stick around to get the party back on track. And I'm really pleased that I I did that. It must... It must be a very satisfying... Vindication, really. And and probably at that point, you probably thought it was going to be like a 20-year... Time frame, or however long you prepare, the stamina. And I think this is perhaps what some people don't appreciate. Is I think one of the most amazing things about politicians, the stamina you've got. If you think of particularly Labour MPs post-2010, to keep losing elections and to keep standing up for what you believe in, even when the public aren't that interested, when you're losing... To keep that resilience and that, that, that stamina is... Politicians are different from the public in, in positive ways, like in terms of your ability to campaign and sustain yourselves. I mean, do you, do you feel like a resilient person in that way? Well, I mean, I've certainly gone through a lot of defeats in the last 12 and a half years. I mean, just sort of can't imagine much of a worse time to sort of become a Labour Party MP, really. But um, 
Um, you know, I was born in 1979, February 1979, so three happy months under Jim Callaghan um, uh, before Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. And it wasn't until I was 18 years and three months that we got a Labour government again. So, you know, we've been through this before and it was worth the wait, I think, for the new Labour government in 1997. Now, my kids were born in 2013 and 2015. I don't want them to be adults by the time they get a Labour government, I'm determined not to repeat that cycle of 18 years in opposition. But, you know, if we don't get on with it, we're heading in that direction. So, you know, I'm determined to turn this thing around and turn the Labour Party into a winning machine again. And how do you feel about just the personal side of politics? Obviously, there's pressure on individuals, there's focus on individuals social media, online media, as well as traditional media. How do you handle being a, a woman in politics in 2022? Um, so I try not to look at, um, look at Twitter, especially too much, but I'm not saying that I'm that good at that. So I sort of take it off my phone and then I like to remember what the password is and put it back on again. <laughs> and I know you've got to take it off your phone. Um, so I try not to look at it like uh, too much because I don't think it is good for your well-being and your mental health um, and I think you're right that women definitely get a much harder time and black and ethnic minority women and Jewish women get you know a harder time um, still um, yeah so I, I'm not I don't really have a very good coping mechanism apart from not looking at it too much really but um, yeah I mean that is I guess a big change as well in, in politics for my generation is this sort of that sort of the social media aspect of it and what about people just being interested in you? Uh, some politicians, I got the sense that Corbyn didn't like that. He said, well, I'm a politician, it's about my ideas. You know, and obviously people go, well, what do you like to, you know, what do you do to relax? And people, in a way, the Matt Hancock thing, he's kind of right in a way that people, they might not necessarily want to see particular people in the jungle or whatever, but there is, people do like to know a bit more about their politicians, perhaps. And do you feel comfortable with that? Do you ever feel like there's a level of intrusion into your life? Um... N not yet, really. Um, uh, but, you know, we're shadows at the moment, so it's not the same, probably, as if you are in, in government when you're really in the spotlight. I think most politicians, you know, me included, you know, don't worry about ourselves so much, but about, you know, our, our families um, being thrown into that sort of spotlight in a way that they haven't chosen to. So they didn't choose to have me as a, a mum or whatever. Um, but, you know, they haven't known anything else. Um, uh, my, my daughter, who's now nine, her sort of first you know, p sort of political sort of memory, I guess, of when she knew what I did was when we had floods in Leeds in, in 2015. And she someone said, what does your mum do? She said, my mum helps people in the floods. <laughs> so, like a modern day Noah. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, and then, oh, there was one time and at school, the kids watched news around at their school a couple of times a week. And there was one time when I was on it and she looked at her friend in this, the other mum told me this, this look, if you say anything, I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't say anything. <laughs> wow, because she doesn't like it. She, you know, she would rather like, you know, that I just had a normal job. <laughs> She's a bit of a Tory. <laughs> 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 she's, that's 
absolute nonsense. Well, why are you she loves red is her favourite colour, and I came home in one election with my red rosette, uh, and she's like, "Oh, what is that?" I said, "It is for the Labour Party." She goes, "I love it." <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> so she was definitely not a Tory. Thank very much, Matt Ford. Okay, so you've got Labour children. You're also a political sibling. It, it, does that? I mean, that's cool, but does that have challenges? Do you mean Bridget Phillipson? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know like Bridget Phillipson? <laughs> my mum my takes to me at the week and she said, I've just seen your twin sister on Laura Coonsberg and I agree with everything she says. <laughs> like, oh, thanks, Mum. Uh, um, but you mean Ellie. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it is funny. So we both joined the Labour Party at the same time um, when we were at secondary school, you know, for the same reasons. You know, our sixth form was a couple of prefab huts in the playground. They were either boiling hot in the summer or freezing cold in the winter. Our school library was turned into a classroom because there were more children, there was space, and there were never enough textbooks to go around. And, you know, I'm not saying that everybody at, you know, Cater Park School in Penge joined the Labour Party, but uh, uh, for me and Ellie, we wanted to do something about it. And for us, that something was getting rid of the government with had for almost 18 years by then and getting a Labour government um, elected uh, uh, and you know actually it's, it's, it's really nice to have my sister around uh, you know yeah I, I wasn't sure when she got elected as an MP what it would be like um, but yeah it, it's, it's great. Because you're three years older than her so when you're at school and you're getting into politics and she's all into it you're like get your own thing. <laughs> I like take that and Gordon Brown. <laughs> You get into Boyzone and William A. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've always had uh, different interests in the Labour Party. So she, she's the first to admit uh, it's definitely right that I'm the Shadow Chancellor and not her. So Ellie's idea of saving money is like buying a couple of dresses and a pair of new shoes in the sale and then saying, you won't believe what I've saved. I've saved £200. And I'm like, so have I. I put it in a savings account. Uh, so, so, so that's why I'm Shadow Chancellor and, and she's doing a different uh, job. Uh, but, uh, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it was nice. It was nice going to things with her. And, you know, yeah, other siblings go, might go to like a pop music concert together <laughs> and we go to Labour Party Conference. So it's really lovely. I think that's cool. But, um... We're like the other kids at school, they're like, oh, here they come, the socialist Reeves sisters. Uh, <laughs> trying to run the tuck shop, there we go. Well, so I think I was like more sort of like, you know, like political and geeky, and Ellie was much more sort of like, yeah, sort of goth and trendy. And uh, I remember this one time, man, this isn't very politically astute of her. She dyed her hair blue, actually. Blue, why did she do that? Uh, not very on message. Uh, so she dyed her hair blue, and my mum came home from work. And my mum saw the phone before she saw Ellie. And, you know, it was one of those white phones that was by the um, hall um, front door, you know, old-fashioned phone. And uh, it was blue. And then Ellie came down the stairs and she said, what have you done to the phone? And Ellie went, it's nothing to do with me. I didn't do it. And I was like, your hair's blue, the phone's blue. I, I think that those two things have got something in common. Uh, so Ellie was always much more trendy and sort of, uh, I was a geek. Yeah. And obviously we've had the Miliband brothers. <laughs> yeah. Would there ever be no. a, a Reeves on Reeves leadership election? No, there definitely wouldn't. Because it's, there's an understanding that the eldest should. <laughs> <laughs> She's not going to challenge me for Chancellor. Uh. 
<laughs> yeah, no. Have you ever had that conversation with sort of God? No, we haven't. No, no, we have, no, no, no. And I, don't, I, don't know, I'm not, I don't think she wants to be leader of the Labour Party, but that's not what I want to do. And we're what, very supportive she's not of each other. <laughs> <laughs> We've always got on really well, and that is not going to change this evening, that thought. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have some time for some audience questions. So, if I can ask, as always, keep the, uh, the questions to one sentence, please, and brief answers as well. We'll try and get a few. Do indicate, and it's good to have a good uh, gender mix as well, um, but there's only one man with his hand up, so here we go. And I have to repeat the question because I don't have a roving mic, so uh, apologies for slowing the process down. Can you explain how you're going to grow the economy, which you keep mentioning, rather than just swiping at the privilege that you dislike? How are you going to actually grow the economy rather than swiping at privileged men like this? <laughs> that was a good-natured and, uh, you know... If you, no, I understand. My comprehensive education in Northern Roots probably offends you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, look, growing the economy is absolutely essential because over the last 12 years, the average growth rate has been 1.4% and under the last Labour government, it was 2.1%. We need economic growth if we're going to keep taxes low and have the money to invest in public services. But sort of front and centre to, for our plan to grow the economy is our Green Prosperity Plan because I think that there are massive opportunities and as a, as a, as a northerner to be leaders in some of these industries in the future from hydrogen to carbon capture and storage to floating offshore um, wind, tidal energy. Um, but other countries are stealing a march from us when it comes to those uh, investments and those opportunities. And I want Britain to be an exporter of clean energy, of electric vehicles, of, of hydrogen. But at the moment, it looks like in the future we'll be importing all of those things. But I see there is a massive chance to grow our economy, which is what Labour's National Wealth Fund, to invest alongside business in some of those opportunities the future is all about. So is the answer that you're going to... Invest the government money. Is that, is that you think as a government you're investing? I, I, yeah. Do you mean as yes, in like so public cash? The how was, was, was okay. how. I, I got the idea you like to do things, but I didn't get how the government. Was okay. Doing. Yeah. So to 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 invest uh, um, and to prioritise those investments in some of those industries and opportunities of of the future. And what's your name? So I didn't catch your name. Richard. Richard. Thank you. Round of applause for Richard. That was a great question. Well done, Richard. Um, okay. Uh, yes, the lady there. Yeah. And what's your name, sorry? Uh, Daphne. Daphne? Deborah. Deborah, sorry. <laughs> Deborah. <laughs> sorry, Deborah. Um, in terms of uh, Brexit, basically, mm. loads of reports recently have been showing the huge economic and other um, impacts Brexit has had on the country. It seems to be a disaster. And yet it's the elephant in the room. Why? Yeah. Why is Brexit the elephant? I mean, it's I did not raise it, um, <laughs> so maybe you got a point. Um, why is Brexit the elephant in the room? So, look, both Keir and I spoke about fixing the holes in the government's Brexit deal in our conference speeches, um, and Keir did a speech about uh, Brexit just a couple of months ago. But I, 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 we're not going to, a Labour government is not going to take the UK back into the single market or the customs union or bring back free movement. But it doesn't mean we are going to accept or are satisfied with the status quo because you know we know and we accept what the OBR say about the impact that the Brexit deal that the Tories have got is having on our economy. So we would seek to fix some of the holes in that by getting a veterinary agreement to reduce some of the uh, uh, delays at the border, mutual recognition of professional qualifications, helping our cultural industry 
industries with touring rights and visas, uh, getting us back into the Horizon Scheme to help our universities and, and innovators. So there's lots of things that we want to do to fix the mess that the government have done, but that will not involve going back in because I think reliving those battles and those arguments and then entering another protracted period of negotiations, I don't think that that is what we need as a country. I want us to come together as a, a country and fix the mess uh, rather than reopen those those old wounds, which I think caused a lot of damage to us as a, as a country. But is there a part of you that emotionally finds that a shame, that actually, sort of rationally, as given your politics, you must think we'd be better off in, and, and at some point, you've in your heart you'd like us to rejoin? Well, look, you know, if we go back in time, I would campaign again to remain in the EU, but I do think that ship has sailed now. You know, that the referendum was six and a half years ago um, now, and, and I believe, and certainly, you know, talking to, 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 to leaders and politicians and ambassadors from European countries, they want a British government they can work with and can negotiate with, rather than a government that is, I think, trying to relive and re-prosecute those battles of six, seven uh, years ago and they want to you know have a closer relationship with Britain and we want to have a closer relationship and a better trading relationship with our European friends and neighbours and I think we can achieve that uh, but I don't want to, to, to relive those those battles I, I don't think that would be good economically to reopen and, and to create that uncertainty again um, but also I think politically we need to do more things to come together as a country rather than to pull us apart again. Okay, we've got time for one more question. And the furthest person away is going to have the best question of the night. Yes. And what's your name? Harry. Harry. And what's your question, Harry? My question is, with devolution, do you think there's a risk that England could become fragmented? With devolution, is there a risk England could become fragmented? Um... No, I, I think we have the, something like the most centralised sort of Western democracy, um, uh, and I, I think that is one of the things that holds us back as a country that we try and hoard, or we do hoard, too much power at the centre, um, uh, and that results in in worse decision making. So, you know, if you take like Labour's Green Prosperity Plan, if we're going to deliver that, we need um, FE colleges uh, and, uh, and and skills training in Grimsby to get people ready for uh, you know more investment in offshore wind we need people in the northeast uh, trained up to have jobs in hydrogen in south wales um for you know for, for green steel and, and tidal uh, energy you know, i want decisions made closer to where people uh, live i think that would be a big boost for our economy and i think it could also go some way towards rebuilding trust in, in politics as well but you don't think you know you look at what's happened devolution and things in other parts of the uk you don't think you'd get a northern independence movement Andy Burnham saying we should be independent from <laughs> the rest of England? Uh, well, I, I, you don't see that in other countries. I, I think, you know, part of the sort of disillusion uh, in, in British politics is that the over-centralisation. I'm not scared about giving power to, to local people and local communities to use that power as they see fit. And I don't think a one-size-fits-all policy for the whole of the UK or the whole of England uh, works. You know, the economics and the economic opportunities in Leeds are very different from, you know, those in Cornwall, for example or those in Teesside are different from those in, in, in Merseyside. We've all got our own strengths. One of the things that Gordon talks about in the report that was published today is these clusters of economic activity in different parts of the country. And we have different strengths in different parts of the country. And yet we've got politicians and civil servants that are making policies for the whole of the UK when I think that that would be better made at a local level. Uh, final question of the night, and it kind of builds on what Harry's saying, and it, it kind of is in this sort of... I guess it brings together various strands. Um, 
Is it coming home? <laughs> you mean Labour? <laughs> uh, uh, Labour and football are coming home. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Rachel, before we let you go, uh, please, uh, a round of applause to our phenomenal audience tonight, including Richard, Deborah, and Harry for their brilliant questions. To all of you for always being such a great crowd. To everyone here at the Duchess Theatre and at Avalon who made tonight possible. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'll see you in a fortnight. But thank you so much to the amazing Rachel Reeves! Oh, wasn't that absolutely great fun? Rachel was a phenomenal guest. Hopefully, uh, I'll get her back on again in the future because that just flew by. And I know I always say this, but I was just completely engrossed uh, and just had such a wonderful time. And so much more we could have talked about. So uh, hopefully uh, Rachel will come back. Um, but thank you to everyone who came. There's a great atmosphere there. And hopefully I'll see you all again on Monday the 19th of December for the last show of the year, the Christmas special with Yvette Cooper, Emily Thornbury and live music from MP4. Then in January the 23rd, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. The 20th of February, Keir Starmer. The 6th of March, Eddie Izzard. More guests to be announced. You can buy tickets on the link in the, the show notes or just follow me on Twitter or Google it. You know, I'm sure you know how to find tickets by now. Uh, but thank you for downloading this. Let's hope, for those of us that are England fans, um, that we go all the way, that we beat France at the weekend. And, and oh, man. I shouldn't start talking about it because I get all daft. Um, but... Yes, fingers crossed um, for a wonderful set of players and a great manager. And, of course, Merry Christmas, whether you're coming to the uh, Christmas special or not. I hope you have a great Christmas wherever you spend it and uh, and a great New Year. I mean, I'm, we're putting out shows before then. I'm getting all sentimental at the end of the year now. I just love Christmas and I love football and I love politics. So, God, what, what, what amazing time for me to be alive. Um, but I shall leave it there. Please do leave a five-star written review. Tell all your pals about it. And I'll see you on the 19th. Ta-ra. Thank you.